All right, it's the top of the hour, and that means it's time for two-on-one, Wednesday's top-rated internet talk show between two disciples pastors talking to another pastor, or theologically educated one, about the uh, pop culture topic of his or her or their choosing. Hi, my name is the Reverend Arthur Stewart. I'm one of your co-hosts. Hi, Arthur. I'm Reverend Stephanie. I'm your other co-host. Uh, it's I'm good Hayden. to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. I... I really look forward to our Wednesday dates together. I know. Um, How does your, um, hey, Arthur, happy Pride. Happy Pride Month. Same to you, because you're an awesome ally, and allies can join with us and be part of it. We give thanks for everybody who's not awful. (laughs) Yeah. You are pretty great. Oh, you're pretty great, too, and I'm grateful that your husband allows you to to have these uh, dates. Um, I don't know allowing is the right word, but you know, he said, have a nice date with Spiff. And I was kind of like, yeah, it is. It's my Wednesday date with Spiff. Oh, thanks, Brian. Uh, Well, yeah, I know we're both so excited to see each other. We've like synced up on talking at each other. I'm cutting you off and we haven't even introduced our guest yet. Why don't you go? Well, no, I was just saying it's it's good to be with people. I've spent a, a long couple of days in, in engaging in today's topic, which makes me um, a little antsy, a little fiery. I may be real fiery today on on women's um, subjugation and liberation, and which I hope I'm fiery towards every day. But well, and I I wondered if there wasn't if I shouldn't have given you a trigger warning or at least a content warning, because like this, it's, it's hard to watch. The hands made uh-huh. is hard to watch on purpose. And so I think for our viewers and our listeners, like we promise to treat this with the same intention and delicacy as always, but it's a hard show to watch. And it's, it is. So yeah. Trigger warning. As we talk about all of the things that are hard to talk about uh, in this show. So, you know, sexual violence, subjugation of women, you know, uh, religious idolatry um, and harm. So just know that's what the show is about. Not two on one, but Handmaid's <laughs> <laughs> Tale. Um, and this show all is of about big theology, uh, hard meats, and uh, talking about TikToks we love in the context of church. It is. But it's also, we have entered, my friend, into Pride Month and my birthday month yeah, and a beautiful blending of the two. And I got my first uh, notification today that guess what is coming? Guess what's in the mail, Arthur? Your uh, stole from Jeff One Row Designs? My stole from Jeff One Row Designs. My pride stole. My Did pride you- with the Justice Fist stole is on its way and i hope to have it next week to wear but do you know what i used to buy my stole did you use a discount code from two on one i did i used our very own discount code two on one all one word got 15 percent off my stole tricked it out as you all know that i love to do with my my accessories and fine jewels um what did did you customize like walk me through this process if you don't okay Okay. so uh i am a five two foot human um i am a i'm a i'm a wee bit and so uh first thing i did was buy the stole that is right for my height which i'm really grateful for because you know most stoles are for uh, people much taller than me. So you can uh, customize length uh, on the Jeff Wonder website. Excellent to know. You can. 
Then I, you know, and I picked out the one that I wanted. I, I don't have a rainbow stole. So this is that this was intentional that I was buying my first rainbow stole. So I did that. And then I had um the the um the fight fist, the the pro yeah, the protest fist uh is is on it. So because I'm gonna wear it to all of my protests. Then I put the disciple chalice on the nape. Okay. Um because I am a disciple. I'm a proud disciple and I'm a proud disciple in the streets and in the pulpit. So put that on there. <laughs> I can't say. Yeah. I, I thought you were going somewhere else. I know you did. Oh. Um, and then um, on the inside of it, um, there's a little, you can have like um, something written, you know, or a little like thing. And so I had one of my ordination texts um, thrown in there because my birthday is also the anniversary of my ordination. Which I just think is marvelous because what's your favorite song, Spiff? The happy birthday song. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Whatever. I love you so much. I just. I love you too. But all that to say, really grateful for all that Jeff does for us, for being our lead sponsor. If you go to Jeff Wonro, J-E-F-F-W-U-N-R-O-W.com, look at his entire catalog of things that he does. Uh, Pyramids, banners, um, chasubles, copes, uh, masks, <laughs> miters, uh, all of it. Jeff does it all, stoles included. Um, and so if you need a new stole, um, you know, graduations and pride and celebrations and ordinations are all happening. Um, head on over to Jeff One Row. Use two on one for 15% off your entire stole order. It's fantastic. And I look forward to seeing it next week. Fingers crossed yeah. that it gets here and it'll, of course, be beautiful. All right. So speaking of things that are beautiful, uh, let's talk about our guest. I, I don't know what that means, but he's a perfectly fine, wonderful human. Beautiful being. human. <laughs> let's uh, welcome in the Reverend Brandon Gilvin. I'm going to hit admit from our green room and see if. I mean, I feel like under his eye. Under his eye. Hello, Brandon. Welcome to Two on One. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, I'm thrilled to be here. How are you guys doing today? I'm all right. <laughs> We're good. I was just I was just saying that, you know, I've just spent a lot of time preparing for this uh, conversation because I had put off uh, watching this show in the last administration um, because it felt like let's That's just. Just, you know, just, it felt a little too documentary-ish. Um, and, uh, and then I watched it now and I was like, Ooh, actually I, after, I don't know if the, if it's January 6th now that is most triggering for me as I go through all of that. And so just processing, really excited to process my feelings with all of you today. Uh, <laughs> no, but, right. uh, really just excited for this conversation because I do think we need to process some of the harder things that we are seeing, viewing, reading, and all of that. Um, so with all that said, people know that our guests get to choose the topic and you were very vocal on Twitter about this and you have a theory and all of that. Um, so talk to us a little bit about why Handmaid's Tale, uh, what's your relationship to it and who you are, what are you doing in this world? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I'll start with me. Uh, Brandon Gilvin, I'm senior minister here at First Christian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've been here about six years, um, originally from central Kentucky. Uh, you know, grew up grew up as a as a member of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. I've uh, served in ecumenical ministry. I've served overseas through our global ministries, worked a little bit for the denomination, and I've served churches in Kentucky, uh, Kansas City area, and uh, now here in Tennessee. All right. Awesome. 
And and so what's your relationship to Handmaid's Tale? Why Handmaid's Tale? Yeah, so I'm I'm a late I'm a latecomer to the book, uh, Handmaid's Tale. It was always, you know, just one of those books that had a ton of friends who read in college, you know, who who loved this book so much. And I didn't read it actually until after I watched the first season uh, of The Handmaid's Tale. And, you know, I I have this sort of thing where I like to read books after I watch uh, a, you know, a film or television, um, you know, adaptation, just because I kind of, it's a fun exercise to kind of see the choices that folks make in, you know, in when they adapt uh, something from, you know, from the, the written word to kind of a visual medium. And so, you know, part of my interest in in re, in this conversation is kind of thinking about the choices that were made, particularly when you're talking about a book that was written in 1985 versus a show that starts in 2017, uh, you know, and and books that are dealing with this sort of hypothetical future uh, written, you know, 20 some odd years apart from one another. So it should be noted, if you haven't read The Handmaid's Tale, the epilogue of the book um, is... This is, they take June, the, uh, spoilers abound as always, we're a spoiler yeah, show. Yeah. They take June's diary, which is the way, it's a found document book, but they talk about the rise and the fall of Gilead, the uh, breakaway fundamentalist republic that emerges in the Northeast of the United States. Um, so it's 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 done historically as, as after. Um, I, I always read the book first. I, I have a lot of opinions about books being adapted into movies. Um, yep. don't need to be shared here, but like, it also bothers me to buy a book and the cover of the book is a picture of the movie adaptation. <laughs> like yeah. I don't have a copy of fight club by Chuck Palahniuk, which I love because I can only have Brad Pitt's stupid face on it. I don't want anyways. <laughs> sorry. Right. Um, right. The book has to adapt, but what happened is they did the first season. That's the book. Right. Afterwards it's, it's no holds barred. And I, I think my question, if I can, if I may start off, Spiff, if that's all right. Sure. My question is, what do we do when we run out of story in the church? Um, when when we finally, well, I, I guess that's the question of of our narrative as a congregation in a transformational church. What do we do when we run out of story? The way things always are, the way things are supposed to conclude, they don't, or they do. What's next? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that's I think that's a great question, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, there was, so there was an evangelical church planning movement. Um, I don't know if it's still active or not, you know, maybe 10 years ago and they named themselves, um, uh, you know, I'm a mainliner, so I can't do Bible quoting very well. You know, what's, uh, what's the last chapter in Acts 20? Yeah. Acts 29. Yeah. So, yeah. So they, they call themselves Acts, Acts 30. Or, Acts or, or what? Acts 29, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah, Acts 28, and they call themselves Acts 29, right? You know, so, you know, written into their self-understanding is the continuation of the story. And, you know, even though theologically they certainly weren't my cup of tea, I, I thought that that was a really, really kind of creative uh, and really interesting way to kind of identify yourself as you are the continuation of the story. And as a living, breathing community, you know, that's, that's who, that's who the church, you know, should be uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so I think that, you know, that's certainly one of the, the interesting sort of lessons that, you know, this kind of act of adaptation or midrash or, you know, however you want to think about uh, this sort of continuation of, of fiction writing uh, can kind of help us kind of think about who we are as the church. I like that. 
yeah. writing and story plotting. Spiff? Mm-hmm. Well, I know. I, so, you know, but books end, right? And again, so stories end. Like, so what do we do? Are we always, do we, we're hoping for June to get out, right? Like that's kind of this entire plot point of, of Handmaid's Tale, at least in the, I have not read the book. I will name, I just uh, watched the first three seasons. Um, until next week where <laughs> I've never seen Rent, Spiff. Oh, I know. <laughs> that's part of your birthday present. I'm watching Rent and it's the movie, not the musical. Anyways. Okay. You're fine. But, anyway, but so we're waiting for June to leave, right? Like we're waiting for June to liberate both herself and to possibly be liberated by others. So really kind of both. And, um, and so I wonder, like, is the church consistently waiting for, you know, whatever is the next to come to liberate ourselves and, or to be liberated. And rather than addressing the, the moment that we are in, are we, are we constantly like trying to get to the other end of what might come uh, and in doing so, do we do a disservice to like the moment that we are living in and the people that we are serving? I mean, I, I think that that's, that's part of the tension. That's part of the, you know, the tension of that sort of apocalyptic vision that we see in the gospels, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is, is here. The kingdom of God is yet to come. And, you know, if we spend a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, um, you know, the kingdom to come as if it's some sort of Christmas list that we're, we're going to get right. right. Then, then, then you kind of create this sort of unhealthy sort of relationship to a future that may, may or may not come. It may or may not be just, but, but it's certainly what you have on your list. Right. Um, you know, whereas, you know, with this idea of the kingdom being here, um, you know, that's, that in in many ways, you know, can drive us to the here and now to, you know, sort of a, an activist understanding of what it means to be faithful and, and things like that. Or, of course, it be- can become something uh, equally unhealthy, which is, I think, what you see in Gilead. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't think Gilead's a model of, of healthy governance? <laughs> it depends on your standards, right? Well, so- <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think I want to bring up like the U.S. support of Israel. Um, and I'm sorry, this is apparently going to become geopolitical and right. a little bit. There's a difference between the United States supporting Israel and the United States supporting a Zionist vision of Israel in order to fulfill an evangelical misreading of the mm-hmm. book of Revelation, because Israel has to be a state in order for them to reject Jesus when he comes back. Um, and therefore, really, it's the provocation of bad end times prophecy or reading mm-hmm. into bad end times prophecy right. that isn't going to happen. But it is further allowing uh, exploitative and harmful practice by aspects of the Israeli government to continue unimpeded because we need them as an ally, but we need them as an ally so they can be cannon fodder for a Christ who's not going to return in this way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What? How, how do we confront terrible and harmful and exploitative interpretation of scripture um, you know, with, oh, what is her name? Of Alfred? Um, mm-hmm. Is she the one who loses the eye? No, that's of Warren, of uh, uh, Janine is her name. Janine. Mm-hmm. Janine loses an eye because if your eye offends, you fuck it up, um, which is a complete marring of Matthew five or six, it's Sermon on the Mount. I forget where it is. Uh, I, I'm still a mainline disciple too. Uh, how, how do we, how do we, 
The joke with the DOC is always when the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ split, the Church of Christ got the Bible while we got the organ. How do we confront the abuse of Scripture as people of faith? That was a really long way to get to how do we, (laughs) how do we? I, I don't. I don't plan questions in advance, Biff. I just kind of have. I to know. I'm here for it. I'm, I'm, I'm here for how do we, how do we, how do we save scripture? How do we save scripture? It's important. Mm-hmm. It's good. How do we save scripture? I mean, part of it, I think, is, is it goes back. I don't know. I don't know about y'all, but I have my ethics certificate for my ordination framed on my wall. Mm. Um, I have my ordination certificate you know, framed on my wall next to, you know, all my degree posters and things. And so, uh, and it's because I like that physical reminder of the the things that I have covenanted with God to do for and with God's people that, you know, education, uh, continuing my education and study of scripture is one of them, continuing to ethically care for God's creation and each other is one of them. And so for me, when I think about you know, the perversing of scripture and how do we save it um, is, has a lot to do with our own intentionality around how we engage scripture as faith leaders. Um, I don't, you know, the conversations that I am having with most of my colleagues are not like personal Bible study conversations and person, you know, and, and um, for good reason, but also like, that's part of what, if we stop doing that while others are doing it, right. Others are doing it uh, in these silos of um, dominion where they see like how they can weaponize this scripture. And we don't study scripture to know how we can use it as a liberative tool in those spaces. We're going to get just run over. Like our, 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 our use of scripture will become a bit more obsolete in those spaces because we haven't uh, we held it tenderly. We haven't done well mm-hmm. by it and for it. Um so I think that that for me, that's a, the, the saving grace of scripture is my own um, reciprocity to saving it back. Um, I just want to note, I'm calling dibs on silos of dominion, <laughs> hair metal band, because that's, that's the phrase of the day so far. Okay. I don't know, Brian, what do you think? How do you save scripture? Well, I, I really, where I was kind of going after you, you, you know, you kind of talked about, uh, you know, that, that code of ethics that we all receive when we're ordained and, uh, and, and whatnot was, you know, in some ways that in some ways that's incredibly important, but I think what kind of fictional worlds like this one that Atwood has created, you know, remind us that is that if your, your, uh, your set or your code of ethics is all wrong, you know, because I mean, all of these folks in Gilead, they have a very clear set of ethics that is rooted in this, you know, crazy, tragic situation, environmental, you know, disorder or, you know, or whatever is kind of at the root uh, of this of this uh, reality. Um, you know, if there's a, a disjointedness from your code of ethics to, you know, what it is that you bring to the table in, in, in interpreting scripture, uh, in some ways, the ethics don't matter, you know, which is why I think, you know, I think it, it also depends on um, a really well held together uh, sense of community uh, in, that is the, in, that does the interpreting together, um, so that you can have this sort of kind of healthy conversation, this push and pull, this 
right, this wrong, this, uh, you know, ability to kind of call in and call out one another uh, when we need to, uh, when there's something kind of unhealthy going on in, in you know, in sort of an interpretive moment. Uh, and, and an understanding that, you know, what we do in terms of in this act of interpretation uh, is always going to be limited by, you know, our humanness. Uh, you know, we're, we're none of us are going to have a, a perfectly objective understanding of, of what's going on. And, you know, if we have kind of a self-imposed ethical limit on, you know, the, the power that we exert uh, through our interpretation, then, then, you know, we have a healthier kind of relationship, not only with scripture, but with one another. Where do you see ego uh, playing in our scriptural interpretation. Cause I think I, I really appreciate what you're saying about like calling mm-hmm. each other out and calling each other in and all of that, but it's only so far as, as we can get out of our own way of being mm-hmm. open to receiving, you know, the good news from someone else and not just right. our own understanding. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I think ego plays into it inevitably. I mean, you know, we, you know, in our tradition, we we highly value our individual interpretation of of scripture, and so you know that, you know, the flip side of that is our you know desire to defend that, uh, you know, when push when push comes to shove. So, so I I think it I think it's that one of the things that that I think is is so important about who we are as a movement. Uh, is is you know just kind of quietly embedded in our name. We are the Christian Church, you know, and we're also disciples of Christ. So there's this individual, I am a disciple, and then there is this, we are a church. And so you know, the fact that we have both of those kind of uh, poles, kind of kind of playing in that, you know, speaks to the balance that I think that we need to have. We participate in a community, and we're individuals. One doesn't override the other. It's a both and. Mm. Arthur, what do you think? How are you saving scripture? No, I, I think the communal aspect is the important part. Um, you know, I always think of Harold Camping, the world will end on May, whatever, 20, <laughs> or 2012. Mm-hmm. And his followers were like, great, you did the math. And they sell off everything. And he was wrong. And then he was like, oops, I forgot to carry a one. It's actually October 2012. And he was wrong again. Um but that's because he was an autodidact and he, I, I think scripture has to be studied. And I think one of the, one of the things that perhaps parts of the church have forfeited or jettisoned is the idea of the ministry of all believers means anyone can interpret scripture well, adequately and correctly. And I know interpretations aren't a matter of correct or incorrect, but there's, there's a, um, well, Actually, the uh, the other minister at the church, I love it. She's like, I actually have training in this and I can ask questions and we can learn together. But part of why you've called me here is because I know more about this to begin with. And I have to convey and transmit that information to you. Mm-hmm. She didn't mm-hmm. say it as such. I We have to have folks who know more and folks who know lef- less, but everyone asks questions. Um, but I like that, the community thing. And I've never thought about the fact that we're a corporate and individual identity together. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, I like that. I learned yeah. something today. Um, <laughs> so do you think anyone is happy in Gilead? No one is happy in Gilead. Okay. You know, and I think that that's, I think that that's part, that's part of the vision uh, that Atwood brings. You know, this is, you know, this is a dystopian future. And so, you know, it's very clear 
that no one is one is happy. You know, this is this is a vision of this is a vision of misery. Uh, you know, and and it's interesting. You know, I kind of I made kind of a quick list of you know sort of the things that were going on uh, when she wrote this book, things that were kind of would have been really influential. So the Cold War, you know, is still going on. This is 1985. Uh, you know, we're not terribly far away from the uh, Iranian Revolution. Uh, you know, you're a couple of years, a couple of years away from uh, the fatwa uh, with uh, uh, with Rushdie. Uh, you have kind of the end of second wave feminism. Um, you know, right around this time, uh, the rise of the religious right and televangelism is huge. Uh, Roe v. Wade is not that old. Uh, Silent Spring, uh, the the book about you know kind of the environmental devastation is there. Uh, the mainline church it looks very very different than in, than it does today uh, in terms of kind of cultural influence. And you know, in 1985, you're not that far removed from the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, the civil rights movement. You know, when you think about you know King died in '68, this is 1985. You know, that's closer in terms of time than we are from uh, from 9/11. You know, currently in in the year 2021. So, you know, so all of these things are kind of are kind of bubbling up in in what Atwood is thinking about when she writes this, uh, and uh, and I think that that you know is one of the reasons that she has sort of a pessimistic vision, uh, and you know wants to issue this very clear warning. Um, about what can happen. So you do know, by the way, in the first episode when June is slapped in the uh, training center, that's Margaret Atwood. Yes, yes. He gets to slap. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of love that. The irony of that, right? So I... You mentioned the mainline church. Oh, I'm sorry, Steph, excuse me. No, I was just going to say, I don't love when women get smacked. No, I don't. I don't love when women get smacked. The author participating in the... Sure. No, absolutely. I was unclear and I mean no harm. with. And again, we talked about this earlier. I think I'm a little spicy today. I'm not going to lie when I'm like, I think the men, there's joy for the men. I don't, I think Mm. the subjugation of women, I don't think that they're as unhappy as who we, who we are journeying this story through, which is the handmaids and the Marthas and, um, and you know, all the, so I would say that, well, and I guess that's a question Mm. for both of you, you know, like, where is the delineation of uh, if, if is no one really happy or are we really? Cause I think part of where we get mm. go wrong in the church is we say, Oh, mm-hmm. no one is happy, but it's like, no, there are some people that are enjoying this and we do a disservice to the work of justice in the kingdom. When we don't acknowledge that this subjugation actually is not only to the benefit, but the joy of some people. Uh, yeah, that, that's it. That that's, that's really helpful. I mean, I, that makes me think about, um, you know, you see documentaries or kind of fictionalized accounts of those experiments that were done decades ago where they separated folks into, you know, kind of ruled and rule, you know, ruled Stanford and ruler prison. or the prison. Yeah. Stanford prin- uh, prison, you know, experiment. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, you know, normal people, people in my position getting a question like I just got would say, absolutely. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing good about that. But when you sure. put them in, when you put them in that role of power uh, where they're designated to be, you know, the, the guard versus the prisoner, uh, they, you know, whether joy is the word or not, you know, sure. or some sort of, you know, sort of sadistic pleasure that they, that they get out of it. Yeah. I mean, they exercise that power and they, you know, they find some sort of satisfaction. Uh, you know, in that power. And I think, and I think that that, you know, that, that is 
very true. And you do see that kind of playing out in the, in the narrative, uh, particularly, um, particularly in the television version uh, mm-hmm. of the story. I think that because of just the form of, of the novel, because it's written like a, like a diary, that sort of thing, you don't quite see that in the novel the same way that you do in the, in the TV show. But I do think that that's something that the, uh, the folks designing the TV show definitely explored. And perhaps, there, oh, go ahead, Arthur. Well, no, perhaps happiness is the wrong term uh, within this because it, it's it's just as a someone who is enslaved cannot give consent, um, and honestly, someone who is an enslaver cannot receive consent because the whole system is imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps the happiness thing is is a better understanding of where is joy, where is where is hope in this. But yes, of course, those who are being physically psychologically mentally spiritually exploited repeatedly are going to be in a much different realm even of existence than those who benefit from it right i, I think of the commander as you know he's, he's, he's doing his job but he's also um very much benefiting um in completely imbalanced and uh horribly dehumanizing ways so thank you spiff that was excellent just a woman over here watching the handmaid's tale well and it, <laughs> and, it, and it raises some questions about like a character like serena joy right you know mm-hmm. who you know as as a wife is in this incredible position of privilege but has you know um everything that she accomplished in kind of to create this thing that has emerged uh you know she's had to give up her ability to create that you know the the books that she wrote Mm-hmm. are out of print and she's not allowed to read anymore. Uh, you know, this, the fact that she had a career, you know, and that sort of thing has disappeared. Uh, and so where, you know, where does someone who benefits in that position, particularly as a woman, you know, what does that mean for her? Yeah. I mean, I think that we, it, it's about looking at your privilege. It's about looking at who is serving whom, you know, it's why churches need to, you know, lift up and center the most vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, and not, and, and I mean, I, and that's why I, I think I, I was coming out with actually this question is more just like, you know, what does the church have to learn from Handmaid's Tale if we look at it as, you know, the reason that Gilead is thriving is because some people enjoy this and those people are given power to enjoy it and are given the power to express exploit everything that is happening. And it, it goes, you know, top down. And while women are absolutely not anywhere near the top of anything wives you know or i I guess that that's what they're called wives Mm -hmm. are definitely above the marthas and the handmaids and you know and all of that and so um how do we privilege the handmaids of our congregation for lack of a better term those that we have subjugated for lots of different spaces you know what Um, through language and culture and, oh, but this is the way we've always been. And we want to get back to the way that our white church has always been white. And um, rather than, you know, learning uh, Korean, because there's a a, a growing contingency of, or not contingency, but growing community of Korean people in our neighborhood or whatever it Mm -hmm. looks like, you know, like how does, I don't know, in your experience, how, or in your thoughts. <laughs> um, what does the church have to learn from this kind of top-down understanding of both uh, mm-hmm. privilege and accountability? Because I guess that's, I think, where the Serena Joy 
uh, piece mm. comes in is that there's some part of accountability to other women and mothers that gets her into the understanding that things need to change. Um, but before it was very much, no, this is just what the Bible says. This is, you know, like what scripture is, is what my husband says. And she just happens to have fallen in a really good draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's fallen into to a good draw. And, and it's interesting because I think, you know, when you look at not only her character, but, you know, uh, some of some folks who her character is modeled after, uh, you know, there's often this sort of rhetoric that they utilize um, about power and privilege. You know, they're, you know, they're here, uh, they're taking down the elites, right? And and protecting, you know, traditional values. So they don't necessarily, you know, uh, someone in that position doesn't necessarily have an awareness of their own privilege, you know, in that instead they're attacking. And, and I think that the, there's a lot to that, uh, just, you know, for all of us. I think that, you know, we're, we're kind of trained, you know, for whatever, you know, reason uh, to see those who have more privilege than us versus, you know, acknowledging, you know, how much privilege we have versus, you know, someone else. So, so, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's part of the the whole equation as well. How do you see it informing the growth or decline of the mainline church um, as we uh, are not too yeah. far off from this real from Gilead's reality being our reality. Right. Well, <clears throat> so yeah, I'm sorry. What, what was that? Gilead is encroaching. Right. Yeah. Mine always posts when she posts the, yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, I don't know if you all saw, but um, so this earlier this week, the, uh, the PIRI uh, poll on QAnon, uh, did you did you see this was really fascinating saying saying that roughly 15 percent of Americans um, have kind of sympathy to the positions that QAnon takes. And, you know, they kind of they kind of broke broke this down, you know, in terms of uh, political party and, and, and whatnot. But but 15 percent of Americans and there were kind of three main questions that they asked. And and, you know, the highest response was. Uh, you know, the elites in this world, you know, there's going to be a, a storm, a judgment, you know, something like that. And, uh, and, uh, and they're going to be, you know, removed from power. And that, that was ranking like something like 20 or 23% among all Americans, you know, so, and, uh, you know, Robert Jones at the PRI noted that 15, that 15% is about the same market share, so to speak, of the American population uh, that mainliners have and evangelicals have. Uh, and there's probably a little bit of bleed over, you know, in those, but that still means that there's this, this sort of, you know, insurrectionist presence, you know, kind of in our culture, that's pretty significant. So, so when you, you know, I think when you take, when you take that, um, you know, it, it does say something about, you know, where we are kind of contextually, uh, you know, in terms of what what a Gilead-like, you know, kind of uh, the possibility of a Gilead-like thing happening uh, is. And, you know, and kind of my, you know, kind of my overall kind of thought is uh, when you think about the anxiousness of the, of the mainline church, um, that there would be, especially kind of given what you see with this, with this QAnon poll, there would be uh, sympathy, interest, self-interest, 
um, from folks in the mainline church that would play out in the rise of a power like Gilead. And I think that that that's both terrifying and fascinating, uh, you know, when, when we kind of think about that. Well, and it's the, the appeal of fascism is that the laziest thinking is completely acceptable. Mm. Two things can be true, not in a way of being held in tension or in balance, but yes, uh, COVID-19 can be both a Chinese virus and a democratic hoax. It exists and it does not exist at the same time because that makes far more sense. Um, the January 6th insurrection cannot have happened and could also have been democratically led simultaneously. And the only thing fascism requires is dedication to the leader. Uh, mm -hmm. I have not, I, I do not remember if in later seasons they discuss like who the leader of Gilead is and perhaps there's an ambiguity in it. I, I, I think especially with theocratic fascism or I, I mean, all fascism is ultimately theocratic. It's just idolatrous within the realm of fascism. Um, it's, it's just the dedication to the, the one idea and everything else is fine. And therefore we can talk about marital fidelity and about, uh, the the scene, there are so many parts of the books that I loved. Uh, I loved that the shopping list was cards with pictures on them because women <laughs> aren't allowed to read or write. And it's so infantilizing and it's so, and I don't love it because it's bad. I love it because it, it was such a provocative it's, image. It's brilliant storytelling is what it, yeah, it's Thank brilliant you. storytelling. Like yeah. I don't, I don't want Spiff to be like, why does he like this? You know me well enough. Anyway. I know. I yeah. uh, But the, with, uh, Serena Joy and June and the commander when he is um, when he essentially is raping her mm -hmm. because it's not consensual sex. Not essentially. He's raping her. He, mm -hmm. he is. He is raping her. But Serena has to be there. And they've turned it into this thing and that idea. So there's this clash of intimacy and family and the whole point, a great point is just lost for the sake of a system no one buys into, mo many people are stuck into, enslaved into, for the sake of this fascist ideal. Every idea is fine because it's the laziest thinking possible. Well, I should be in charge. We should make the Washington Monument. It's just not a cross yet. You know, that kind of shit. Excuse me. St no, you know what? It is shit. It's all shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I wonder if we've removed ourselves as churches so far from, you know, what, so this is, I was going to be part of my final answer, but I think I'm going to ask it as a question. Uh, Eden is one of my favorite characters in the show, who is this 15 year old girl who is married off to Nick, who is the driver for the commander in June's house for those that have not watched. We have a, there's a large conversation on Twitter or on Facebook right now of uh, female friends of mine saying like, oh, maybe I'll watch it now with your eyes' conversation. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, maybe um, <laughs> ladies uh, buckle in. But so um, and she uh, falls in love with someone else. Um, she's 15 and, uh, and they ask her to repent before they kill her as everyone inevitably dies in the show. Um, and she doesn't, she recites scripture in a way. And then you find out it's because she has been reading scripture and studying scripture. And it leads to this, it leads kind of to, it's one of the impetuses for the revolution of women in this space, especially with Serena Joy. But 
so in this system and in this, if we use this as a metaphor, are churches, are, are, are the students coming out of seminary who are eager to lead and lead this change well being killed off because we expect repentance and, uh, and kind of an even flow into this established society? Are we killing them mm. as we say, you have different theology than I do. You have a different way of leadership than I do. You're too young to this. You don't want to repent for your heresy and all of this um, for things that are not heretical at all. Um, yeah. Is there, is there a parallel there, I guess, for you guys? Do you see that um, in, in that space? Sure. I mean, I th- yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great metaphor. I, you know, and I don't even think that it's a matter of there being uh, a demand for repentance. You know, I mean, I think you have young folks who who come into these sort of leadership spaces, and the pushback is more: you don't understand the rules, yeah. right? You know, you know, the, the, you know, it's not it's not a superficial. You know, this is the way it's always been. You know, these are established rules by an established community, sometimes a 200 year old community uh, that, and the rule, you know, and the culture in that community has changed so slowly, you know, because, you know, that's just how established communities change that, you know, folks, folks don't realize that they're, that they have these rules uh, Mm -hmm. necessarily, but they have the expectation that those things are followed because that is indeed the way things have always been. I think we've developed a theological neutrality in the mainline and in the mainline church. I don't think I'll go for progressive uh, without realizing that neutrality benefits the oppressor. Um, it's if, if we, if we really want a big tent, um, I, I, I don't think anyone really wants a big tent. And I think we've lost the idea of unity as forbearance and instead think of unity as neutrality. Um, I, I have all the time in the world for people who think talking about white supremacy is a personal attack. I really do. I will sit down and have a cup of coffee and walk through it and say, discussing white supremacy does not in fact mean that you are a card carrying member of the KKK. Discussing white supremacy means that you benefit because of the color of your skin in society in ways that you don't even notice. Great. But when they say, well, I'm not going to engage with that. I stop having time for them. Right. And what the church, what the mainline church has done, and and of course, I mean big mainline, and I don't mean every congregation, again, talking in big concepts, is that they've mortgaged the uh, chance to have a defined identity for the sake of holding things together with people who have no affinity for one another. And ostensibly, they should be saying, well, it's because we confess Jesus is Christ, Son of the living God, Savior, and Sovereign, and the rest of it is commentary but they won't preach Jesus because Jesus is offensive. So they preach Jesus, J-E-E-Z-U-S. Jesus who says, everything's easy. Think whatever you want. All means all, but don't actively engage the other. Maybe I'm a little salty today. This is perhaps... Um, salt the earth, man. There it is. Um, I, did, I, I did have another question, if I may. Do it. Um actually, I want to phrase it well. I don't want to spend the rest of our time that we have in this conversation talking through the question. So I'm going to think about it, then I'm going to talk. So I'm, I'm listening. I'm also boop, 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 boop. Yeah, I don't. Um, Brandon, who's your favorite character in this show? 
in the in the in the show, my favorite. Or I, I mean, in, in yeah. the world, yeah. Either way, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I, so I actually I want to talk a little bit about my favorite uh, character in the book. Uh, you know, Arthur Great. kind of alluded to this early early on. Um, I think in the book, and and I don't know if there's ever going to be a way to actually do this in the show, but I think the most important and the most interesting and probably the most terrifying. Um, you know, uh, segment of the book is the historical notes slash afterward, uh, which, you know, Ar- Arthur mentioned, you know, it's it's an academic conference in the year 2195, uh, where they're discussing, you know, uh, Gilead or Gileadian studies. So, you know, Gilead has come and it's fallen and you have these academics. I mean, if you've ever been at AAR or, you know, Society of, uh, for Biblical Literature or any academic conference, you know, you, you'll notice the tone, you know, of, of these sort of things, you know, immediately. And they're discussing this, uh, you know, this diary, this, you know, cassette tape diary of called The Handmaid's Tale. And they're discussing whether it's authentic or not. And it, you know, and there's some, you know, inappropriate jokes that the, that the lecturer makes and, and, and that sort of thing. But, but there's, it's just this really fascinating, I think, indictment of what we often do um, academically. And I put seminarians in there, you know, as well, um, what we do academically about when we discuss the suffering of people, uh, you know, because here is this whole, you know, really, you know, interesting, really intellectual uh, you know, discussion and interrogation uh, of this document. And we have just experienced it as a novel that, you know, you know, hits you as hard as the, as, as the television show does. So, you know, it's, it is very emotional. It's very hard to watch. It's very hard to read. And then, you know, at the end, it's like, oh, what a fascinating thing for us to talk about. And, you know, we're going on a little nature walk uh, later as part of the, as part of the conference and, and, and that sort of thing. So for me, you know, this professor who gives this lecture uh, is my favorite character because, you know, it, it problematizes, it frames, uh, you know, everything that we're kind of discussing, you know, in such a powerful way that I think, you know, indicts, indicts all of us, indicts the casual reader, uh, indicts, you know, the the person who comes to this book with concerns for human rights. Uh, you know, it, it just makes us, you know, kind of think and do a double take uh, in a lot of ways. Mm. So let's, I, I think in that, um, I think there is a sanctity and a um, disposal of life within this book. One mm-hmm. of the, oh my gosh, I can't remember her name. I think it's Alfred. And excuse me, because I never remember anyone's names. If I, it, it, she's the lesbian in season one. And she finds her partner and there's this shot and it haunts me. Like I think about this shot like once a month and they're driving both in vans and they take out her partner and they hang her. But through the window, you see her being raised up and killed as her partner's being driven back to sexual captivity. Um, there was real whiplash because I had been watching Gilmore, Gilmore Girls earlier that weekend. <laughs> and I was like, it's a real Rory Gilmore whiplash. <laughs> Rory, like, um, I was watching the season with Dean, or, and I was like, and then going to here, I was like, oh, God, poor Rory. Um <laughs> 
How about that Shakespeare and Sarah from Chuck are keeping that one person from Mad Men hostage? And this entire show is me going like, why is Josh Lyman and uh, <laughs> with uh, Zoe Bartlett? Like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's way better. Um, they, so the, they're, ostensibly all of this, not all of this, but mo- some of this is, oh, we've got to have children. We've got to have, you know, mm-hmm. propagation of the human race. And we've got to bring life into the world. Um, and they're also sending people to die of radiation poisoning. They are mm-hmm. killing folks left and right. My sister, when she was like, maybe I'll be a good Martha to someone. And she looked at me and she's like, you'll be killed immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, uh, dark humor, uh, what are you going to do? We see this right now, where we have restrictive legislation, which is insane. Like the Texas abortion ban, people don't know they're pregnant at six weeks, but suddenly they keep pushing and pushing, trying to provoke Roe versus Wade. They're criminalizing, essentially, women, um, and it's in the pursuit of life, but yet, once a child is born, they don't want to do anything to support it, to help it, to protect it. To uh, why would a five-year-old need medical care or daycare or access to food? Um, how, I'm sorry, I said this wasn't going to be a super long-ass question, and it is. How how do we? Can we rant about that? I don't think I have a question better than that. Like what the actual hell is my question, but I don't think that would you, are you asking me if I can rant about how we subjugate women's bodies in the not, political, not, not will you, would you please? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll offer it to our guests. Brandon, would you like a rant? <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, I think, I think I, what I hear it kind of at the heart of, of, of what you're saying, Arthur, is that, you know, what the, what this narrative you know, kind of argues is that, you know, fascism or nascent, nascent fascism or proto-fascism or whatever, you know, it values, it values some life more than others, right? You know, it's, you know, it, and that's always behind a veneer of valuing life. And don't and, all lives matter. Well, right. But, but by saying, but by saying all, all lives matter, you erase the critical question about what it means you know, for black lives to matter. Right. I mean, so that's, you know, it's, it's that similar, it's that similar sort of thing. Exactly. And, and I think that that's, you know, I think that that, that's one of the things that, you know, both Atwood's novel and the show, you know, are really, really interrogating here is, you know, when we, you know, when we say we've got, we've got to, you know, invest in a future because there's a fertility crisis and we've got to create children, you know, who, you know, who falls at the wayside and, you know, and who gives a damn about them uh, because they're being sacrificed. They're being called by, called by God, you know, to serve as handmaids, to, you know, serve as Martha's, to, you know, uh, to die a glorious death, you know, what, what have you. Well, and I found it, I mean, I get rant about this all day long. Let's just say, get out of my body, get out of, like, mm-hmm. let me just be, uh, you know, when, uh, the greatest uh, joys of my life may be children. It may not be children. I mean, like, there's just like all of it. Um, 
but like, so this week there was that thing on Twitter that was a woman posted from Pennsylvania where Pennsylvania could expand the need to claim for a death certificate for miscarriages, mm-hmm. which ended up being primarily like for the most part false. Like that's not a bill that was passed, but en- like I watched enough people be like, this is great. This is exact, you know, like this is how we should honor children. And I mean, that's why Twitter's a, a mess, but like, um, and it's like, well, no like this you don't you only honor the unborn it's not even children and it's not even who god has made them to be and i really found gilead to be an interesting space where so when they're trying to do the mexican trade it's like Mm -hmm. uh, and she's like i'm from a small village that we haven't had someone born in six years right Mm -hmm. that people who are so convinced and of of the goodness of God and the kingdom to come are so afraid of extinction. And it, and I want to be like, you know, then who is Jesus to you? Who is, what is this? What is a resurrection? What is the world that you were trying to make? And what is your, you know, holy next step after this humanly body? Uh, Because it seems like you don't actually have, faith in a in a benevolent god that is creating and recreating again and again you have faith in the need for your own biological lineage to mm. seed mm. um and part of me thinks that that's where the church is really held up in we are not ones that love to say let us resurrect again and again we are ones that say let us remember those that came you know like that that built this church 200 years ago and how do we honor their traditions you know how do we honor the framers traditions and you know invitation for the constitution when it's like okay but like most of who live in america are not named in the constitution so, you know, and um, same with church constitutions. How do we, how do we, how do we be a church that lives into the resurrection, Brandon? Oh, wow. Well, there's the question of the, you know, there's the question of the year, the question of the century. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating thing, you know, it, how we even frame, you know, what, what the resurrection is, you know, I think, I think that we, we're, I think for a lot of us, you know, who, you know, have come into to ministry, you know, over, you know, the generations that, you, you know, y'all and I have, you know, we, we inherited this understanding of, of the resurrection as this, you know, this factual thing to believe in and to say, you know, and to say, you believe this, and that is what salvation is. And so, of course, you know, you, what church becomes then is a community full of people who ascribe, who ascribe to this belief. That's, you know, and so that's how the resurrection functions as this mm. factual thing. Whereas, you know, for me, and, you know, and this is, you know, it, this is the sermon that I'll, you know, that I'll, I'll preach, you know, across my career, you know, I, I think, you know, to kind of riff on, you know, the Wendell Berry line, you know, resurrection is a spiritual practice. It's something that you're invited into it's not something that you believe it's something that you you participate in Mm -hmm. and you know and that's you know that for me is is the difference so if you're if your community is about you know believing in this factual thing well it's going to behave in a certain way but if your community is about joining in this spiritual practice and living into the story 
you know, and, and, you know, to get back to Arthur's first question, you know, kind of building upon that story through its, you know, through the life of a community, then, you know, then you're going to be something very, very different. And, you know, death, death of your organization means something different and new life that comes after that death means something very different. Whereas, you know, in this kind of older model, you're terrified that you're going to run out of people who sign up for the same set of beliefs that you do. And yes, it's belief is not intellectual assent. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, I wish that we were creedal because that's the one thing I would miss <laughs> be in our creed. Belief is not intellectual assent, but of course. But then it becomes a creed. Then then it, the can creed it be a creed? Exactly. <laughs> so we are coming to the end of our time together, and I want to make sure we honor our tradition and our work, Spiff. Um, what? Oh, you looked like you were going to say something, and I don't. No, I'm listening to you. This is my listening face. I'm just hoping this is where Facebook freezes um, the the picture because it's always like me looking dashing and spiff sneezing. Um, <laughs> so our final question is, I'm going to try to ask it if that's okay with you, Spiff. Do it. Yeah, please do. Because I was hoping that you would have pictograms for what it's supposed to as a joke. Um, very nice. What uh, biblical theme, chapter, story, pericope, parable, character uh, reminds you of or speaks to you from The Handmaid's Tale? Um, well, you know, it's, it's when I saw that question, you know, it, it it caused a lot of things to kind of rattle around my brain because, you know, there's just so many biblical allusions in in the story itself. But um, but I ultimately landed on Esther. Uh, for for a couple of reasons, I think you know. I think when you think when you you can put uh, you can put Esther and Alfred kind of intention as, as characters, as you know, uh, you know, liberators, as uh, as as leaders. Though there's you know, I think the the ambival- ambivalence and fear that sometimes is you know kind of very clear in in uh, in Alfred uh, creates that sort of tension. Uh, but the other thing that I think makes it a really interesting comparison is that in both the book of Esther and in the handmaid's tale, God is silent. Mm. That's a good one. I like that a lot. I'm going to go for Jacob and I'll tell you why I'm going to go for Jacob because I, um, my line always about biblical marriage was, well, let's remember that marriage is between one man and one woman. And her sister that he was tricked in <laughs> and the two enslaved women that follow them because they have to. Um, I, it's, it's, it's somewhere in the patriarchy because Hagar also just speaks to me so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since I read Dr. Gaffney's uh, Womanist Midrash, mm-hmm. Hagar just speaks to me and she's the one, the only one who names God. Right. And I think June more than anything is a prophetic voice. She, she has to be, but I, I, is it cheating using a handmaid for the handmaid's tale? (laughs) No, I think it's appropriate. I mean, that's, you know, let the voices speak. Uh, I went for the commander as shocking John of Patmos. Um, (laughs) Because he's uh, a professor. Because because he loves to think of himself as benevolent and yet is so harmful and mm. and just terrible towards women, you know, um, revelation in and of itself, Jezebel being a preacher that he just doesn't want to hear from and his, you know, him, the, the, the show writ large in there, you know, 
women are problematic uh, kind of narrative uh, is real Jezebelly is real revelation <laughs> uh, to me. And, uh, but I, as I was watching this, I was just like, Oh, like if, if uh, commander Weatherford wrote letters to the other people, this would be the book of revelation. This would just mm. be like where we're at, how to subjugate women. I told you to stop listening to her, but you didn't. So now I'm going to rape and murder you. Um, whereas, Oh, the other men around here, we just need to help them understand God a little bit more, <coughs> but the women we're going to make sure we just like attack their physical bodies. Mm. Um, and it's about, you know, the book in and of itself is about empire and destruction. So welcome to the handmaid's tale. All right. Well, Brandon, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, this thank was you. Hard, and it was fun, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's weird that it can be fun on something so hard. I agree. This is a really great time, Brandon. Thank you so much for for coming and having these. Really yeah, thank you. But I think that what we're talking about here is why part of why we do this show, right? Is mm-hmm. that we are all sitting around watching a lot of TV, watching a lot of listening to a lot of things, and if we don't it informs who we are. And if we don't start to dissect, if we don't start to say, what can we learn from this? Um, we're at a real disservice to how art and culture fuels the church. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking about things in community matters. So if you're listening to this and you are of the theological mindset, you certainly probably are. Drop us a line at two on one project at gmail.com. We would love to talk to you. Be sure to like subscribe, share, uh, stock our channels we are available literally on every single podcasting platform in history you could get us on your zoom player that's how like deeply embedded we are in the fabric of content uh we are of course sponsored by jeff one check out jeff brandon thank you and spiff what's happening next week is anything it's just a really normal week it's no, a it's normal not. week it's a week of normalcy in which half of the week I will be 37 and the other half of the week I will be 38. All right, um, and, 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 and we are talking rent, my friends next week. We are out of Gilead. Thanks be to God under his eye. Um, and Alphabet city with the Reverend Douglas and Cartwright. Absolutely. Into uh, my favorite Broadway show of all time, which I have seen 40 times. Uh, right. So, and I haven't seen it, but I've, I've, I think I've been holding out just, just for you, Smith. Thank you, I appreciate it, Brandon. Thank you again so much. We are so grateful. Thank we you guys. Anytime. Uh, Love and to. This yep. has been two on one. See y'all later. Deuces, deuces.